Dr. Robert Carlson has been chair of the NCCN Breast Cancer Committee since the inception of that organization, and I met with him for his take on a number of recent trends in breast cancer treatment. To begin, Dr. Carlson commented on new approaches to the use of adjuvant endocrine therapy. We have seen two different shifts. One, and probably the major shift, is in the postmenopausal woman, the incorporation of the aromatase inhibitors into the treatment paradigm. And the vast majority of postmenopausal women in the U.S. today with receptor-positive disease are receiving an adjuvant aromatase inhibitor out the door as their initial and often only hormonal maneuver. The complement in the premenopausal woman is the resurgence of interest in the use of ovarian ablation or ovarian suppression in combination with tamoxifen in the adjuvant setting. And of course, that has also segued in through the soft trial and so forth into the consideration of using the aromatase inhibitors in women who are biologically premenopausal but have ovarian suppression. Where are we right now in terms of standard of care in terms of premenopausal therapy for premenopausal patients? So off of protocol, I would still consider tamoxifen as the major adjuvant endocrine therapy for the premenopausal woman. I do not routinely, nor do I believe I ever have, off of protocol performed ovarian suppression so that I could use an aromatase inhibitor in the adjuvant setting in a premenopausal woman. And the situations in which I think there should be consideration of ovarian suppression or ovarian ablation in combination with tamoxifen are those women who are the young premenopausal, probably under the age of 40, and who have a substantial risk for recurrence of disease. Now, what about the issue of the duration of tamoxifen? For a long time now, it's been five years. Now, in the recent San Antonio breast cancer meeting, for the first time, we started to see results from the ATLAS trial looking at more than five years of therapy. What was your take on that, and where are we with that? Well, you know, we've never had large prospective trials looking at five versus ten years of tamoxifen. The studies that were done historically were modest in size, at least as we would view them today, but they were fairly consistent in suggesting a disadvantage to the prolongation of tamoxifen therapy. The ATLAS trial results that were presented at San Antonio this last year were quite provocative, but they're very, very early results. And I think we're going to need to see what happens over the next few years as the bulk of patients in the ATLAS trial really get into the five to 10 year time period. I think the thing that was really interesting about that was the fact that we were so completely convinced that giving in more than five years would be counterproductive. And, you know, PETO has been saying for a long time, we just didn't have enough events. And as you say, this really has to play out. But at least right now, when he presented it, it looked like, if anything, there was an advantage to going beyond five years, 10, 15 percent. You know, kind of hard to say how it's going to play out. Was that your take on it? Yeah, that was my take on it. But, you know, part of it also is going to be overlaid upon the fact that it's possible that the ATLAS trial, by the time it's done, will be of historical interest only, right. because in the postmenopausal women, we're using the aromatase inhibitors as part of the process now, and that's not in the ATLAS trial. And if the soft and text trials and so on find that ovarian suppression adds, then we'll be doing ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen or an AI, and that will be totally different than the paradigm that's used in the ATLAS trial. Yeah, it's kind of more like interesting. It is interesting historically, though, in terms of what happened. It was pretty wild. And the other issue is, as you say, things are changing in terms of the postmenopausal patient. 
And there, as you say, right now, most patients are receiving aromatase inhibitors. Where are we right now in terms of our understanding, particularly of the long-term impact of aromatase inhibitors? Again, at the San Antonio meeting now, we saw the longest follow-up of any of the AI trials, 100-month follow-up in the ATAC trial looking at anastrozole. We've got other trials looking at letrozole. Where are we right now in terms of risks and benefits with the AIs in postmenopausal women? Well, the 100-month follow-up of the ATAC trial was, I think, very, very important and was probably one of the most important abstracts presented at San Antonio this year. The results were actually very, very encouraging and reassuring. We know that with tamoxifen from the early breast cancer trialist overview analysis that the benefits of tamoxifen in terms of risk reduction for recurrence and death persist well beyond the time period of actual tamoxifen administration. And there was concern that that might not be the case with the aromatase inhibitors, and so you might win in the short game but lose in the long game. And the efficacy data from the ATAC trial shows that there is substantial benefit to anastrozole, at least as an aromatase inhibitor, beyond the five years of actual therapy. And the hazard rate for recurrence actually, or for the differences long-term, actually was a little bit larger in the ATAC trial than it is in the overview analysis looking at the tamoxifen carryover effect. It's an indirect comparison, so we have to be cautious, but it's very reassuring that we see persistent, sustained benefits from anastrozole after it is discontinued. Yeah, I can remember when that slide popped up there with the, you know, first he put the first zero to five, and then he did this sort of reveal where you see five to nine, and then I was just like, wow, that was an impressive slide. Yeah, and the trend of increasing advantage is apparent to the eyeball and to the statistician. The converse part, the issue of toxicity, I thought was also uh, yep. reassuring. There were no new unexpected toxicities with long-term follow-up, and especially the bony events, the fracture rates with the aromatase inhibitor versus tamoxifen the five years after. So the patients were given their initial five years of anastrozole or tamoxifen, and then in the subsequent five years, the fracture rates came back to be superimposable between the tamoxifen-treated and the anastrozole-treated women. You know, it's amazing when you think about it. This is only... Seven years ago, I guess, they presented it for the first time. But, you know, we forget the fact that these patients in the attack trial didn't have their bone monitor. They weren't getting bisphosphonate. Nowadays, it's like a whole part of clinical practice. And so this was sort of untouched in terms of bone, these people. And yet, as you say, it seemed to end after five years. Well, you know, one of the possible explanations, I haven't seen the data, but one of the possible explanations for the fracture curves coming together with the extended follow-up in the ATAC trial is that we've learned that you need to look at bones. Yeah. And that it may be that the women on the aromatase inhibitor arm of that study had their bones assessed and were actually had an intervention off of protocol. Hmm. That's interesting. As people got more sensitive to it with time going on, interesting thought. Another thing that was really interesting about those data was the endometrial cancer in the second five years, or five through nine it was like 1 versus 12. And they even brought up the question of, is this just the absence of tamoxifen's you know, negative effect or increasing the risk, or could this actually have some kind of a preventive effect in terms of endometrial cancer, which doesn't seem that far-fetched? Yeah, it's hard to sort out from the data that we have, but one would think from those numbers that it's probably a little bit of both. I guess the practical thing that's come out since all these data came out is maybe a lot more confidence about dealing with serious problems like bone, But now I think a lot more sensitivity to the issue of aches and pains with AIs. What's your take on where we are with that right now? 
I continue to think that the arthralgia syndrome that's associated with the aromatase inhibitors is the most difficult toxicity of all with the aromatase inhibitors. It's common, and I think it's more common than the trials would suggest. It can be quite disabling. It's the most common reason for me to take someone off of an aromatase inhibitor and switch to a different type of endocrine therapy. And it's very, very frustrating to treat. The usual things like the non-steroidals, Tylenol, exercise, glucosamine, chondroitin, those sorts of therapies just don't seem to impact the arthralgia syndrome very much. You know, in the past, surgeons, particularly surgeons specializing in breast cancer, often would write for tamoxifen, and I'm not really sure yet. We're actually doing a patterns of care on surgeons now for the first time in a long time we're going to see whether they write for AIs. But what are your thoughts about that issue in terms of surgeons putting patients on aromatase inhibitors? Well, I think in the day and age where we have multidisciplinary teams caring for patients with breast cancer and where what different physicians do for the patient and with the patient overlaps much, much more, I think, than it did historically. The surgeons now, I think, are doing a much better job and a much more persistent job of follow-up of patients over the long term after their operative treatment and so forth. And so I think the surgeons are much more involved. I really don't think it's an issue so much of specialty. I think it's really an issue of individual physician expertise. And I think all of the hormonal therapies are such that if someone is interested, it takes the time to understand what the issues are in terms of toxicities and can counsel a patient about their benefits as well but importantly also knows how to intervene when the patient does experience a toxicity, then I think that that's fine. There's a complementary situation for the medical oncologist. The medical oncologists these days, I think, are really becoming the internal medicine experts in the treatment of osteopenia and osteoporosis. And historically, that was really left to the endocrinologists. But we don't have enough endocrinologists in the country, I think, to handle the bone health of a large number of women that we have on the aromatase inhibitors. So it's another example where I think it's much more interest and expertise than it necessarily is specialty. Yeah, I think it really isn't necessarily rocket science. I mean, what you have to do to have somebody on an AI, and it does take, you know, you have to learn a few things, when to do bone density, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, I think, as you say, if somebody's interested and they're willing to learn, certainly it seems like it'd be as easy as using tamoxifen. I mean, tamoxifen had its issues, too, or has its issues, And that also gets into the issue of the long-term management of these patients with ER-positive tumors. And it's been like, it's amazing, you know, considering how long endocrine therapy has been around, how much our perception has changed just in the last seven or eight years. And a big part of that is, you know, this issue of when people relapse. Can you kind of summarize what your take is on that and how the original risk affects long-term risk of relapse? Well, what we're finding in assessment of the long-term follow-up studies is that women with estrogen receptor negative breast cancer tend to recur earlier. Their hazard of recurrence is greatest in the five years and then decreases rapidly after that and gets quite low after about 10 years. While in the women with initially hormone receptor positive breast cancer, their hazard for recurrence is lower initially in the first five years than with hormone receptor negative disease but that the hazard persists, elevated for a somewhat longer period of time. So that it's looking that if you get out long enough, probably 12 years, maybe slightly beyond that, the ultimate recurrence or no recurrence is about the same. It's just that the recurrences in the hormone receptor positive subset tend to happen later in time. What about the issue of duration of AIs? 
Now, again, you know, since the data came out seven or eight years ago, we are starting to see a lot of women coming up to the five-year point. And there are trials out there randomizing people between continuing or stopping. But in a non-protocol situation, how do you sort of balance out the risks and benefits of going beyond five years? Well, I think it's really hard to do that because of the absence of data. We do have the MA17 trial that used five years of tamoxifen followed by five years of an aromatase inhibitor. And that trial suggested a greater benefit to 10 years of therapy as opposed to five. That wasn't five years of aromatase inhibitor versus 10 years of aromatase inhibitor, so it doesn't answer the question directly. But the longer duration of therapy did appear to be beneficial. On the other hand, if you look closely at the MA17 trial, there's also a suggestion that the survival, while it was slightly in favor of those women with lymph node positive disease, was perhaps slightly inferior in those women with lymph node negative disease. And it gives me a little pause that perhaps there are toxicities of the aromatase inhibitors that are significant and perhaps somewhat underappreciated that overbalance low risk for recurrence. So that in a woman who has a high risk of breast cancer recurrence, the aromatase inhibitors on balance have a positive effect long term, while with low risk of recurrence, that balance may be less favorable and the toxicity experience may predominate. So I think you have to look at the individual woman and see if you can assess what her long-term risk is beyond the five to 10-year time point. You know, when you talk about low risk or high risk, I mean, the numbers that I've been hearing, and I think they're kind of built into the adjuvant model, I guess this is post-tamoxifen, I guess maybe they'd be a little different theoretically after an AI, is in a patient with a node-positive tumor, year 5 to 10, a 4% annual risk, 20% risk over five years, node negative, 2% a year, 10% risk. Do you agree with those numbers? Those numbers are reasonable estimates. That's kind of substantial. You bet it is. But we also know that the risk reduction that comes from the aromatase inhibitors is a proportional risk reduction, and it's a modest proportional risk reduction. It's far less than 50% risk reduction. It's probably more That's compared to tamoxifen. Correct. Correct. So, I mean, if you compare it to nothing, I guess it would be more than that. Although most of those risk reductions are risk reductions that have been documented very early on rather than later, but still very encouraging. What about the issue of the patient who's had five years of tamoxifen, who's out maybe a year, two, three years, or in that window having completed tamoxifen? What are the situations where you might consider starting an AI? Well, there's no prospective data to inform us in terms of when it's reasonable to start an AI after tamoxifen has been discontinued for an extended period of time. I can tell you that It's pretty uncommon for me in actual practice if the tamoxifen has been discontinued for a year or two without an aromatase inhibitor initiated. It's uncommon for me to initiate an aromatase inhibitor at that point in time. I don't think it would necessarily be wrong to do so. It's just that we all have to make judgments when we have an absence of data. Where do you think things might be heading in terms of breast cancer chemo prevention? And specifically, of course, the AIs are being looked at How do you think they're going to play out in the prevention situation? Oh, I think that the aromatase inhibitors, at least based upon the contralateral risk reduction that we see in the ATAC trial, for instance, that the aromatase inhibitors are likely to be superior to tamoxifen or riloxifen in the breast cancer prevention setting. I think the real challenge will be whether or not those risk reductions are offset long-term by the issues of osteopenia, osteoporosis in the otherwise healthy population. 
We were talking before about this issue of ovarian suppression, ovarian ablation, et cetera, and a premenopausal woman. But what about the premenopausal woman who just naturally becomes menopausal? I mean, these women eventually all they live will become menopausal. And in addition to the fact a lot of them, if not most of them, are getting chemotherapy, which is going to probably hasten that. So what about the patient who's on tamoxifen, since most premenopausal women, they'll be on tamoxifen, and then during her five years, at some point, maybe it's right after chemo, maybe she doesn't get chemo, just stops menstruating. At what point do you say, wait a second, this is a postmenopausal woman, why don't I put her on an AI? Well, it's a complex question, and I think menopause in this setting really has two components. So natural menopause is typically defined on population basis of absence of menses for a year or longer. We know, however, in women with chemotherapy-related amenorrhea or who are on tamoxifen and have cessation of menstrual periods that's tamoxifen-related, that they may have normal premenopausal, even sometimes supra-premenopausal circulating levels of estrogen that their ovarian estrogen production may be quite stellar and be solidly premenopausal. So in those women who are felt to have had a chemotherapy-related menopause or an age-related menopause while on tamoxifen, it's really crucial to not just ask about menstrual function, but to also do biochemical measurements of circulating estradiol and LH and FSH to see if the pattern is truly postmenopausal. And beyond that, it's also important to do that serially because it's been well documented that many women who appear postmenopausal biochemically when placed on an aromatase inhibitor actually will revert to a premenopausal status. And we know by experience that the aromatase inhibitors appear to be suboptimally active in premenopausal women and are associated with the development of benign ovarian pathology. One other issue about management of the ER-positive patient before we get into the other main thing I wanted to ask you about, was, which was your take on management of the HER2-positive patient and all that's happened with azure and trastuzumab, and that is, what about the issue of chemotherapy in the patient with an ER-positive tumor? We've seen a real sort of interesting change in attitude about that whole issue. First, the node negative, and now we're getting some data, node positive, and also the whole issue of the archetype in these patients. Can you kind of provide an overview of that issue of chemotherapy in these patients and how right now we're approaching these patients clinically? There has been the suggestion for decades, you know, Mark Lippman published a paper way back in the, I think, late 70s, early 80s, looking at chemotherapy sensitivity of hormone receptor positive breast cancer and suggested that women with ER-positive breast cancer were less likely to experience benefit from chemotherapy. And that's a theme that's come back in many different ways. We know that the frequency of hormone receptor positivity increases with increasing age, and we know that the benefits of combination chemotherapy decline with increasing age, so there's a suggestion there. And there was a recent publication from the Early Breast Cancer Trialists Overview Group that looked at chemotherapy benefit in hormone receptor-negative patients and stratifying them by age and found remarkably similar risk reductions, proportional risk reductions across all age groups. Well, if that's the case with the receptor-negative patients, then it suggests that maybe the declining benefits of chemotherapy with age really are not related to age. They're related to changes in frequency of hormone receptor-positive disease. There are also some older trials looking at the use of CMF chemotherapy that suggested that once you got to a what we would call a moderate level of estrogen receptor expression, that there was no benefit from adding chemotherapy to good hormonal therapy. 
And I think that that's a theme that's beginning to emerge today, that women who have hormone receptor positive disease benefit to a lesser degree from chemotherapy than do women with hormone receptor negative disease. And that at high levels of estrogen receptor expression, the benefits of chemotherapy may be very, very low, if any benefit at all. So there are a number of ways we can look at that. We're learning that pathology laboratories may not be great at assessing for us hormone receptor status, positive or negative, and if it's positive, they may not be very good at assessing how high the level of expression is. And that creates problems when we try to make decisions in the clinic. I think that that's actually one of the real strengths of the Oncotype DX assay, so the 21-gene RT-PCR assay that can be done on paraffin-embedded tissues. And one of the prominent gene components of that assay system are estrogen receptor-related genes. And that system is remarkably reproducible. It's highly accurate and so forth. And so it may be that some of the newer gene methodologies will allow us the ability to measure estrogen receptor expression and potentially other gene expressions much more reproducibly and accurately. And I think now they actually are going to report quantitative ER on the oncotype. I actually do think that that would be potentially very, very helpful, as well as you know levels of expression of HER2-related genes that come from that test. We know that pathologists overall have difficulty measuring HER2 accurately also. Let's talk a little bit more about the oncotype because what we've seen in our patterns of care studies is increasing use of that. First, we saw it with the investigators. Now we're seeing it with the docs in practice. Of course, in node-negative ER-positive tumors and essentially HER2-negative too is where it's being used and used a fair amount. And it looks like when people looked at it that it's changing how people get treated. Some people are treated now who wouldn't have been treated with chemotherapy, and there's others who, a lot of people who avoid chemotherapy. How has that been working in your practice? Well, in my practice, I have sent off a modest number of Oncotype DX assays. Patient selection criteria are similar to what you said. Its use should be limited, from what we know today, to hormone receptor positive breast cancer that is axillary lymph node negative, although that may change over time as well. And in the population of women that are HER2 positive or have HER2 positive disease, the Oncotype DX assay almost always comes back high risk. And so the patients in my practice who I would consider doing it in are the women with estrogen receptor positive, axillary lymph node negative, HER2 negative breast cancer. And especially in those situations where the woman is reluctant to consider chemotherapy and definitely where the result of the assay would make a difference to her or to me in terms of the confidence with which we would do the therapy. It's interesting to think about that historical perspective you were talking about of this feeling going back to Mark Lippman that chemo doesn't work as well on ER-positive tumors. And here we see, well, yeah, there are 25% of people, at least in the node-negative oncotype, who had high recurrence score where they got great benefit, but they were sort of buried with the 75% who, or at least half, who have less benefit, and being able to pick those out, I think we were kind of really handicapped until that in terms of how to deal, particularly with smaller node-negative tumors. That's true, and we know that still, no matter how we look at it, the women with the T1A and probably T1B tumors, axillary lymph node-negative, those women do well, almost regardless of what all these other biomarkers show. It's really the women who have the T1C, so the 1 to 2 centimeter node negative or even the 3 centimeter node negative tumors, 
where these newer biological systems will hopefully be very helpful for us. Now, again, at the last San Antonio meeting, the 2007 meeting in December, for the first time we saw, well, we have seen data before, but I think these are data people are really looking for, looking at oncotype and node-positive ER-positive patients. What was your take on that? So Kathy Elbane presented a really provocative paper looking at a CAF chemotherapy-based regimen with tamoxifen in terms of the ability of the Oncotype DX recurrence score to predict prognosis and benefit from chemotherapy. And in the analysis as it was presented, it looked like the assay system might be successful in doing that. The difficulty with that abstract, I think, is that we really need to see the data more carefully laid out so that we can get a better sense of who the patients really were that were included in that analysis. It was a subset, what their characteristics really are. And it also then becomes an issue of, and it's something that we deal with all the time, is when is evidence evidence? And my recollection is there were about 360 women in that analysis, and does a retrospective study of 360 women who are stratified into three different subgroups for low, intermediate, and high recurrence score, do the results of that sort of analysis in a very small patient population overcome literally decades of experience with tens of thousands of women who have been stratified based upon what I would call classic prognostic factors. And probably one study doesn't do it, but I'm sure that we'll be seeing other studies looking at women with actually lymph node positive disease. And I hope it works, because if it works, it will really allow us, importantly, to be able to select a group of women who do not need cytotoxic chemotherapy. Or who won't benefit by it. I mean, we know for sure that a lot of women who have node-positive tumors don't benefit from chemotherapy because they relapse. That's correct. And we know that there are, depending on how many nodes, there's a certain number who wouldn't have relapsed anyhow. So we know a lot of people aren't benefiting by it, and they still might need it. Maybe they need something else, some kind of biologic, et cetera. But if the relapse rate and mortality is not going to be reduced, even if it's still going to be high. I mean, if I'm a patient, I don't want to go through chemotherapy unless it's going to help me. So I guess, as you say, it's just, is this going to play out over the next few years the way this first report, you know, very recent report? And I guess I would say that my expectation is that it will. I mean, it's this kind of consistent story when you think about it. Right. And it's also consistent with, there was a report at San Antonio also looking at the mammoprint assay system. And the ability of the mammoprint to identify women who are going to recur or not going to recur, even with node positive disease, was really quite impressive as well. What's the sort of update on the mammoprint in terms of, I guess in the past has been this issue that they need fresh tissue? Yeah, the disadvantage of mammoprint is that you must have fresh tissue from the tumor. It can be fresh frozen tissue in order to do the assay. And of course, The majority of women who go to the operating room don't have invasive disease. If, on the other hand, you know that a woman has invasive disease and the disease is big enough that the pathologist will let you freeze enough of the tissue to do the mammoprint, then it's a reasonable study to do. It is an FDA-approved test for prognosis, so we should have the ability to do it if we think we're going to depend upon it. I guess the one thing about it that kind of at least makes sense to me as a non-scientist is this issue of proliferation and having an accurate measure of proliferation, accurate measure of HER2, accurate measure of ER. And I know there's a bunch of other stuff in there, too, but at least that stuff, it makes sense. I mean, you know, if you have a patient who has an ER-positive tumor, but it's growing rapidly, 
kind of makes sense it would respond to chemotherapy. It sure does. And I guess on the reverse, if it's proliferation, I know there's a lot of other things that determine whether chemotherapy is helpful, but I guess that's sort of classical. Speaking of proliferation, I guess the other major thing that's really changed in terms of adjuvant therapy is anti-HER2 therapy in the patient with a HER2-positive tumor. Can you kind of summarize you know, what's happened over the last two, three, four years in that regard? Well, we've seen a tremendous paradigm shift in terms of how we approach women with HER2-positive breast cancer, especially in the adjuvant setting. We now have six or seven major randomized trials looking at combination chemotherapy with or without trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. And those studies, with the exception of one now that we just reported, are remarkably consistent that the addition of trastuzumab decreases the risk of recurrence, the hazard of recurrence, by about 50%, and decreases the risk of death from breast cancer by about 35%. And those are tremendous risk reductions. Those are the sorts of risk reductions that we see with endocrine therapy and hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. It resulted in a very, very rapid adoption of trastuzumab-containing adjuvant regimens in HER2 overexpressed breast cancer. You know, it's also accentuated, again, from the point of view of the surgeon handing the patient off, the need for accurate HER2 testing. We already had the need for accurate ER testing, and I'm not sure we accomplished that either. But where are we right now in terms of trying to know that your patient has had a good HER2 assay or, for that matter, ER Well, if we look at HER2, where I think we have the most recent, probably highest quality data, I think there's general agreement, certainly among medical oncologists, that the results of the HER2 testing that we receive are, for the most part, accurate, but not accurate enough. And that's both with using immunohistochemistry to assess the transmembrane protein, as well as the FISH test to measure number of gene copies of the HER2 gene. And it looks like the False positive rate for HER2 testing may be as high as 20%. I don't think we have good numbers yet on the false negative rate with either IHC or FISH testing. But when we have a therapy that's as efficacious as trastuzumab in HER2-positive disease, but also that has toxicity that's also substantial, especially cardiac toxicity, that it really behooves us to be certain that we're treating everyone who should be treated and not treating people who shouldn't be treated. And that's a real problem. So the American Society of Clinical Oncology, College of American Pathologists, the National Conference of Cancer Network have all, in various configurations among those three, issued guidelines for HER2 testing that are remarkably consistent that really call upon our pathology colleagues to validate to very high standards the quality of their HER2 testing if they're going to report it for clinical purposes. So for practical purposes, how does the surgeon know whether or not the tumor in his patient's been tested appropriately? It can be very difficult. One way is that the ASCO NCCN CAP sort of configuration has in general recommended that the testing of the positive or negative HER2 results, not the intermediate or sort of borderline cases, but the either clearly positive or clearly negative, be 95% accurate. And what's done is there are reference samples that are sent around, and the laboratories should be able to show 95% concordance with the standard if they're going to report HER2 testing on a regular basis. One of the things we've learned from all of this also is that a pathology laboratory who buys the HERCEP test, for instance, which is an FDA-approved kit for immune histochemistry, that many pathology laboratories will actually take that kit and modify 
the methodology in ways that they think actually improves the quality of the test. But then that modification does not always get validated to the degree that we would like. Well, that's a scary thing. I did yeah. not know. Yeah. So Jeez, it's, that's so, like a pharmacy saying, oh, well, let me touch up this adriamycin a little bit or yeah, what? That, that's exactly right. <laughs> and so it's now not only enough to know whether or not your pathologist is using an FDA-approved kit or not, but are they using the FDA-approved kit in the way that it was approved? And, you know, the bottom line here is that you need a laboratory that has high concordance with gold standards in terms of testing, that to get that type of high-quality testing, you need a laboratory that does that test all the time because we all do best what we do all the time, and that that really, in practical terms today, probably restricts HER2 testing optimally to the central laboratories. So let's go through some of the controversies that have come out since this initial splash of exciting data. And one, I think, relates to the issue of chemotherapy with trastuzumab. Of course, all these studies have combined chemotherapy with trastuzumab. And one question is, what about trastuzumab without chemotherapy? Older patient, a patient who you kind of normally wouldn't want to give chemo to. We know that trastuzumab alone also has efficacy in metastatic disease. What about in the adjuvant setting? So trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting by itself is likely active. We have no prospective data to show how active it would be, but it probably would be active. One of the difficulties, though, is that the patient that has comorbidities that are severe enough to prohibit the use of good cytotoxic chemotherapy in general is going to be an older patient likely with underlying cardiac disease. And we know that one of the major toxicities of trastuzumab is cardiomyopathy and that the cardiomyopathy is related to age or the frequency of it. And so it's the sort of patient population that you might consider single-agent trastuzumab is the patient population where you're going to get the same sort of toxicity experience likely that you would get with chemotherapy. Although I guess the issue is how much toxicity is seen in terms of cardiac toxicity with trastuzumab and how much of it is related to having received anthracycline, such as adriamycin, which is pretty common. We don't know for sure, at least in the adjuvant setting. Certainly some of the cardiac toxicity is related to the anthracycline, but probably not all. It just looked like one of the trials did use chemotherapy that didn't include an anthracycline. That was the BCRG trial, and it looked like there they didn't see very much cardiac toxicity. They didn't see nearly as much cardiac toxicity in the TCH arm as they did in the AC followed by T plus trastuzumab. And I guess that's really a big area of controversy, at least among the medical oncologists right now, is which chemo, if you're going to use it, to add to the trastuzumab. Medical oncologists love to argue endlessly about the optimal chemotherapy. Right. And there are probably a number of different chemotherapies that are much, much more similar in efficacy in this situation than they are different. I guess the other thing, too, that's kind of good is that it doesn't seem like other than, you know, this, I guess, what would you say, up to 4% risk of heart failure? Would you go with that number? Well, I think that 4% is the number overall sort of in the patient mix in the clinical trials. I think it actually in application is likely to be somewhat greater than that, probably greater than that for several reasons. One is that the clinical trials excluded women who had any history of significant cardiac disease. They also did compulsive monitoring of cardiac function that hopefully people in practice are doing, but it's likely it's not quite as compulsive. Also, there's a lot of selection bias for who goes on to clinical trials that tend to be healthier women and so forth. And as people become more and more comfortable with a therapy like adjuvant trastuzumab, 
they tend to use it in patients with increasing amounts of comorbidity. So I think we'll actually probably see a higher than 4% frequency of cardiac toxicity when all is said and done. That's interesting. Now, these patients, after they finish the chemo, keep going with the trastuzumab out to a year. What's quality of life like on trastuzumab alone without chemo? How do these patients feel? Well, the usual patient experience with adjuvant trastuzumab is the toxicity is really going into the infusion center and getting the intravenous access. The actual trastuzumab itself is associated with essentially after the first or second infusion where hypersensitivity reactions occur. The infusions themselves then become virtually non-toxic. There's no hair loss, there's no nausea, there's no diarrhea, there's no fatigue. It's really quite well tolerated. The toxicity that we worry about, though, is the cardiomyopathy. And the goal, of course, with the cardiac monitoring is to try to detect the cardiac injury before the patient develops symptomatic congestive heart failure. Now, what's the long-term outlook for those women who do develop cardiac problems? Well, we don't know what the long-term outcome is. We know what the intermediate outcome is. And the intermediate outcome looks like many of them, but not all of them, have improvement in cardiac function. It's one of the situations where the involvement of a cardiologist skilled in the management of patients with cardiomyopathy is very helpful in terms of initiating management with the ACE inhibitors and the beta blockers can substantially help to improve and maintain and potentially even reverse some of the cardiac toxicity. Now, another controversy that's come out is the issue. I mean, at this point, I think it's certainly become standard of care to use drastizumab in patients with node-positive or 2 positive tumors, but there's been controversy in the node-negative patients, sort of how low do you go in terms of tumor size? What's your take on that? Well, we know that there are many women with node-negative breast cancer, especially those that have large tumors that have a substantial risk for recurrence and may actually be as great as those women with node-positive disease. On the other hand, as we talked earlier, once you get to a sort of a threshold small size of tumor, certainly tumors less than 5 millimeters and probably tumors less than 10 millimeters in greatest diameter, the outcome of those patients is quite good, almost regardless of everything else so that in the HER2 overexpressed node-negative breast cancer, I will usually not use trastuzumab, certainly below 5 millimeters in size, and often will not between 5 and 10 millimeters in size. There's sort of a functional strategy that I use, and that is that if I'm not going to use chemotherapy because of low risk, then I'm not going to use trastuzumab because of low risk. And if you think the woman has a high enough risk for recurrence, to warrant the use of uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy, then she probably has a high enough risk to warrant the application of trastuzumab. But that also has to be balanced with the fact that, as we talk, there's a 4% risk of cardiomyopathy, symptomatic cardiomyopathy. And if the woman's risk of recurrence with chemotherapy alone is 8%, trastuzumab is going to reduce that by about half, but she's going to have that cardiomyopathy that's going to happen that frequently as well.